0: It's really good to be able to reflect specifically on what this day represents. Want us to be anchored in the word that allows us not to doubt and to anticipate that if God spoke it back then, he means it for now. We're a church that can with confidence say he is coming soon. Have you been having troubled sleep lately? (laughs) You might be able to say that must be a sign that Jerusalem is a cup of trembling. The global scene is not as I would desire it, but it seems to be aligning with what will be a transition globally, that the church will ascend divinely. And the remnant that's left behind will be going through an extraordinary time of grave testing. Graves have been opened, but the testing of man's soul and their hearts will be grave. There will be a generation saved from among them, but the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon them. And so what we want to do is find encouragement in what this particular day represented to Jesus, what we would call the culmination of the years of ministry that he had been engaged in. The busyness of the week that follows in what today represents the triumphal entry is rather extraordinary. Some of his largest and most powerful parables and sermons came within that last week, he spoke a lot of what to anticipate, really spoke his heart in terms of what he elected to do, which was in obedience to the Father and for the love of humanity, satisfy this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Everything about his journey would have been a provocation of cowardice to any of us. For he knew as God the brutality that would be inflicted upon him by men. And none would go through such a brutality as Jesus. For it was not simply at the hands of wicked men. It would be ultimately in the testing of God himself, the wiles of the enemy, the oppressive forces of demonic entities, teasing him to not go through with it. As well, a wrath that would be poured out upon him by God his Father in place of us, the children of God, because of the desire of God to have a kingdom of kids. So in this, I want to anchor you with this verse. You're familiar with it because every now and again we, we present it when we look back prophetically. And this can be found in 2 Peter's where I'm going to draw your attention to. And in the first chapter at verse 19 is where I'll read this is laying a foundation for what we will look back on. First, or excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, a great passage to remember. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. 21, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This anchors us in what would have been an anointing upon Peter, the one who had challenges himself in following the Lord with diligence and following through with the proclamations of fidelity and I'll die with you. This very same Peter is the one who, as he looked back and as he positioned himself in the strength of the Spirit, was able to say this prophetic word that moves through the beginning and the closure of Scripture is not by man. Man's just an instrument. It's the Spirit of God. And you need to be able to have no doubt That when you see the passage of prophecy and the relevancy of the contemporary, you better take notice. You better firm up your faith. You need to plant your feet in a direction that says, I will not deviate. I shall not waver. I will not get bogged down. And in these days that are precarious, that's what you're seeing. Faith is wavering. Feet are stopping. People are giving up, turning away. It's what indeed we know as the tendency of man to be fearful of the things that are coming or to have their hearts quenched. Once full, once indeed empowered by the Spirit of God, they've turned from the Lord. One of the things that we need to do is when we see it, though it saddens us, we also need to see that it's a marker of what was prophesied. So going back now to what we would say is the familiar text of Scripture and the anchoring of that in this title, The Duty of Donkey and the Role of a Rock, it captures both things that are presented here. And you may say, that's kind of silly. Or yeah, that's that's a pretty good title. Well, that's not intended to be silly. It's intended to concisely put in order what the scriptures foretold would happen. In the book of Micah chapter 5, usually we will say this at Christmas time, a book that preceded the actual revelation of it about 400 years, we were told that a virgin that would be full with child would deliver in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, a child, and that child would be known as Emmanuel. And so with that as an anchor, we know as well. That if that did, in fact, come to pass, then what the Lord is going to be speaking about today and the means and manner by which he came into Jerusalem, a donkey has another privileged opportunity. One would take Mary into Bethlehem. The other would take Jesus ultimately into the city to satisfy his calling. A mother perched on a donkey to bring the Son of God into his habitation, which was nothing more than a stable for animals, to be then delivered as an adult on the back of a young colt and into the city in preparation to be laid on the altar of a cross to die for us. It's not the only scripture. Isaiah would foretell many of the things that qualified the attributes of the Son of God, Jesus, before the public of that day, and all of those having been satisfied concerning Jesus. That book was written some 700 years before what we now say was confirmed in the actual Arrival of Jesus and his death and resurrection. Pretty awesome. But there's another book that pertains specifically to this event that we see as the triumphal entry. And that's the book of Daniel. It's an extraordinary book as well. Penned some 538 years before what, as a mystery, would unfold in that event. And not only simply in what we call the triumphal entry, but precisely the day of that triumphal entry. That would be March 30th, and it was A.D. 33. When you go back into the book of Daniel, Chapter 9, verse 25, it speaks of the coming of Messiah in mathematical terminology. But it's not Julian mathematics as far as the calendar goes. It's Hebrew. And without putting those two together and obviously seeing there would be a distinct difference in the calendar year, It baffled people because it never lined up with what was a mathematical formula on the Julian side. The one who discovered that was a British officer and theologian, Sir Robert Anderson, who penned a book in the mid-1800s known as The Coming of the Prince, And so you can look that up and enjoy it. It was revelational, and it was a revolution of intellect. He was one who was noted in his days both as a dramatic and faithful soldier, but his specialty was military intel, or the longer version, intelligence. A military usually established with military intelligence does formidable good work that guarantees battle success if those who are on the ground are able to operate in the accuracy of what they've determined the enemy is going to do or has done. How do we put them in check? How do we take them out? Intel. World War II was won by military intel. The Germans had a device that was encrypting secret messages. In their encrypting of secret messages, it would work contrary to what the seemingly prediction of the Allies would be on what are they going to do next. It was called the Enigma machine. Military intel via the Alliances of allies were able to discover not only that they had this machine, they were able to mathematically determine exactly the code for taking what was encrypted and deciphering it. And Therefore, they became the ones that had the advantage because as war plans were plotted and movement of troops were happening, they were getting beat before they could implement it. Or they were getting resisted at the time of the conflict that was the result if you would of intel and so sir robert anderson as an intelligence officer as a lover of the lord was able to take that formula and determine the day that prophetically agreed to the hour of jesus's arrival into Jerusalem, we know it as the triumphal entry, confirming that Daniel was not off his rocker. He was totally right on the rock. So that's a area that you can look up. I gave you the author, Sir Robert Anderson, and I think you will find that to be an extraordinary blessing to have in your pocket. Let's move into this and we've read substantially actually the scripture today but i'm going to hit also an area that's parallel to it and therefore let's move to Luke 19:28 and put your fingers there Some of you are sliding it on your cell phones and going, ha, I'm faster than you. Yes, you are. So this begins actually in verse 28. There's a distinction, though, and I'm going to have to bring you back to Matthew 21 because of some of the facts. They're not in contradiction. Two different authors focusing on two different elements of this very same event. But here's what this tells us. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. I'm in the 29th verse now of chapter 19 of Luke. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, whereas you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. Hold your spot. Return to Matthew 21, 1. Notice the details, a little bit more to it, which is important for a picture. When Jesus drew near, verse 1 of 21 in Matthew, and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. The same village has been pronounced here, Beth-fedge. That means the township of unripened figs, not necessarily something that would provoke you to stop at the fruit stand. There's a picture there because the fig tree is for Israel, a national symbol. And following the triumphal entry, Jesus will deal, as we've talked about before, a fig tree. The fig tree represents national Israel, which was always to be spiritual Israel in its behavior, its function, its ideology. Everything about Israel was to point to God and direct people as well with their hearts to the Lord. It was not a tree that God could eat from, for they were unripened. And illustrative of that was a tree that would seemingly have evidence it was ready to be eaten from, but it was barren, offering God the Lord nothing, suffering a curse. This village, which indicates they were moving from, Leads to another one not yet so named, except when they advance down from this mountaintop. The mountain area, and you can't think of something like Everest. It looks more like a hill that ascends, but back then, mountain was a good qualifier. And so, on this ascent in the plateaued area, two cities: Bethphage was one, Bethany. The other, which means, as you remember, the house of poverty. It's interesting that both of these pictures, one establishing, if you would, what the Lord is seeing from Israel and what the Lord himself came as from heaven to earth and he was wealthy in spirit, but he was poor as a human being. He would say in his travels, I have even no place to rest my head. He was as dependent upon the Father as we are as dependent upon the Holy Spirit in the provision both of giftings and of fruitfulness and in faithfulness. But as we see this, notice the plurality that comes up. Opposite of you, find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. It's two. Luke emphasizes one, if you would, the main beast. Matthew's emphasizing two. It indicates that this one that Luke was identifying is the younger, it's the foal. It's a male baby donkey. The mother with it. Interesting picture. Would be at that stage in her maternity, what protective of a colt. You've seen that happen. People that mess with mama's babies, they get a shellacking. That can be a human mommy. <laughs> who can probably outrun you if you mess with their babies, or it can be an animal. The nature of a mother in maternal protection is to defend and to take out an enemy. Jesus has waiting for him, very likely in Bethany, this mama donkey and her colt, And the male cult would have a disposition of what? Rebellion. youthful zeal to be kicking its heels up against anything and everything and probably cinched up to that post and only settled in comfort by the mom. The Lord in using this as a picture is saying that as God, he has control even over the nature of what would be an impossibility for you and I to pull off. Maybe the master of those beasts. But the idea here is that he's dispatching his disciples to take those animals into custody. And therefore, the disposition of them, which would be contrary, is showing that I will subdue what is essential for you to get done in order for me to accomplish what I've come to do. It's kind of a picture as well what Jesus would say to you and I. Do I not have authority over everything in your life and over all things concerning, possible and impossible? You trust me, you obey me, you do what I've told you to do and the fruit of that is ultimately the result that you'll see in how I enter in both to your situation and how I proclaim myself before you even take another step with me. Jesus would be taking steps on this cult with a mother that is yielding to that in every manner. The cult and the donkey, one of them would have been figurative of a king of the Jew riding in a procession to take himself into the city. The Jews would have known it. And so this would have been somewhat extraordinary. That's the advance that you now know. This was a procession. It was the Lord making a Clear and decisive picture before his people that he had come. It lined up perfectly with the scriptures that we read in Micah before that was the event at Christmas. Zechariah 9 9 is the donkey. It's an amazing scripture that is unfolding. And so as he has this being done, obliged by his disciples, it was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the donkey. The young baby of a donkey even that might sound impossible the bone structure the immaturity the god himself on it could not only endue that animal with strength but that that animal would actually oblige him even in weakness he's god this is royalty this is my creator So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. The plural is being used here, and it's kind of fascinating right now. It's almost as if they are traveling in tandem, whether before or behind or to the side. It almost has that look. But regardless, what the garments do reflect is that both of them are united on the one cause of getting Messiah as king into the city presented in a fashion that no king up to that time would have ever thought to do, could have done. Jesus allowed and permitted. Talk about a provocation of intelligence. What do we have going on here? Rome, probably laughing. Huh. They do stallions, not donkeys. But this is God's way of showing that his servant, our Lord, the Messiah, came from heaven in humility to earth to die for humanity. And there was no change on it. The song breaks forth, and this is where I'm going to return us back to Luke. We'll pick it up here in verse 36, back to Luke nineteen thirty-six. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They are validating beyond any shadow of a doubt that what had been told, what the multitude had actually visited in the work of God through the life of Jesus was confirmed by multitudes of multitudes of witnesses, and they erupt in a song. And this song is as follows, well blessed is the king who comes In the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. These are the big cats of the religious system. These are the ones that Jesus came to defy and to challenge in what had become a corruption of representing God in a system that had failed to recognize the Lord himself. They had the parchments. They had the covenants and the testaments. They had the Torah. How could they have missed the scrolls, which, as I have mentioned to you, would have been completely sufficient as evidence? This is that which God has shown us. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You have an animate object represented by two animals. You have people themselves as a multitude singing a chorus of acknowledging the kingship of Jesus in the lineage of David who was promised this as evidence in the covenant that God gave that he would always have someone on that throne. And then you have the inanimate objects of a rock just waiting to scream out, give us the word, God, just give us the word. Do you remember that in the building of the temple, the chief cornerstone actually was rejected? The chief cornerstone of any building is what holds it up in a particular area of necessary tie to all of the other component parts of the architecture. There's a chief cornerstone, and from it, the layout of the entire plan is formatted, straight lines. Plum, and strong it was rejected those who were the builders would be blaming the court hey how did our order get messed up what's going on here and what's that i don't know what that is but toss it out in essence that's what happened this main cornerstone No one was confident what to do with it, so it was discarded only to be discovered later, but a substitute had been put in its place. It's a picture, too, that there are substitutes that people will put in the place of Jesus, who with authority and finality comes into a situation to change it for the better, And rather than utilize him, rather than acknowledge who he is, he gets tossed away from the project that he wants to complete in your life, my life, the church's life, the life that a nation should be reflecting, full of vitality, of wholesomeness, of righteousness, of fearing God. All of these things, when the Lord is tossed to the side, lead to what we see today, lawlessness, rebelliousness, vindictiveness, murders, covetousness, paganism. No one will take the easiest step, which is to come to the cross. Seek the Lord, change direction. They would rather deal with the consequences of a failed life because of not realizing that even the rocks would cry out. If the church were suppressed, even the rocks would cry out. Inanimate objects are part of God's creative resource, and any at any time, could be released to give a message. Sometimes it would seem to me that we are told that we have rocks in our heads. What rocks do you have in your heads that aren't crying out? Listen to the Lord. How many of you have been hit by a rock? It doesn't feel good. It has an impact that changes your pleasure pretty quickly. Pictures in the scriptures identify a rolling rock that will crush those who are in opposition to God. And so when we look at these visions and these prophetic come to pass moments, we are to be getting really excited This event, both historical and highly spiritual, is simply giving us that week that is called the Passion Week in which Jesus moves. In spite of all of the rejection and ultimately this procession, this parade of spiritual acknowledgement will fade within days. Because he cannot satisfy in this time what the people want him to do, which is to take on Rome and lead them to victory. He has to take on sin. Rome's just a small guy. Just a flick on his shoulder. Sin is the issue. And it requires not his shoulder and a flick. It requires his heart and his death and his resurrection. That's what this is about. So when we put ourselves into a remembrance Very well done by Robin leading us in that today. It's to remind ourselves that all of these things put in place that Jesus would follow precisely to the degree of the prophetic utterance was intended to secure you and I to liberty and to freedom and to access of God 24-7 as he purposed to secure himself. To the cross. Through the agency of men, of metal and hammer, of calculated wickedness to torture, that's where Jesus was headed in this procession. Reminded in every course that probably exceeded two miles from Bethphage to Bethany, down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Brook. It's very interesting. It's It all looks very much more like a, a broad canal, like in Los Angeles, before it ascends to the higher mountain hill area. And of course, as you might presume, it would be through the Eastern Gate that he would come into the city, which, as you know, historically, has been cordoned off, blocked off, by the Muslims, and they've actually put a graveyard in front of the Eastern Gate, and graves that mark the course up the Olivet Mountain. It's all graves. It's a picture, too, of bones that one day will be rejected and bones one day that will have sinew and flesh restored they will rise some bones don't belong there and they're intentionally put there as an insult to the jews but some bones are there because they want to be close to the city and they want to be in the path that messiah some in their orthodoxy believe shall come This path leads him, though, into the city. Let's continue, and then I'll be ready to close on this. Notice this passionate plea. It follows right here. The stones would immediately cry out, so they're going to be subdued because the people are going to keep singing, no matter what these Jewish elitists, spiritual men are saying, threatening him. And as he draw nearer in verse 41, he saw the city and wept over it. This is important to know. There was a previous encounter in which there was the raising of a man who had died whom he loved. He was the brother of Mary and Elizabeth, Lazarus. And he was beckoned to come to that tomb, And he stood outside it. The picture is one who in a sorrowful moment bowed his head, but then in a moment of power and authority cried out and told that dead body, Lazarus, arise. And faintly to the eye, but inevitably to obedience, however it happens, he's bound I still haven't figured out the walking part of it. It doesn't necessarily speak of levitation, so however it's done, he comes out and he instructs the family, you unloose him, you unloose him now. And if you didn't know it, and you thought that was a great honorable position to be in, which it would be, he had a wanted poster on his head the rest of his years. He would once again find death at his door. But Jesus would be able to guarantee painless this next time. You'll be entering into heaven with me. And so this concept even right now where death is something that is to the human that which we want to evade it will manifest a reality of gotcha. It's your time. Where are you in your time with the Lord presently? Everyone here should be able to say, I have a relationship with God, and when it's my time, I will be in eternity in his time. In the blink of an eye, as rivers awesomely researched one billionth of a second, I'll be in heaven in a billionth of a second, the twinkling of an eye, you as members of the body of Christ, the church, you'll be in heaven when the Lord sounds that trumpet. We're not going to war, we're going to a banquet. We're going to a honeymoon feast. So all of these things are in the heart and mind of Jesus as he moves with precision on this very day, this event, with yet a whole week to reach out and touch someone. God is reaching out, and his heart is to touch someone today. He touches my heart today. I'm not perfect in what I do with the touch of God on my heart, but I definitely am attentive to it. And I try to do my best to satisfy it. And when I fail, then I actually ask the Lord, help me to succeed. The success of Jesus right now on this day would culminate as he moves into the city. As all of the regalia of what we would say makes a parade. That's pretty awesome. Listen to the singers. Wow. Who's ever seen foliage on the road like that? Donkeys in concert, a mama that should be biting his back, and a colt that should be kicking him off. Wow! (whistles) Bring in the clowns. All of this would have been an amazing work and a practical, iconic challenge to what is normal. But he goes into the temple, and that's what it tells us that in the next verse, that's where I'm going to just jump you over to, verse 45. He went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. The place of prayer, the house of God, became desecrated by commercialism. That isn't happening here, by the way. Nothing here that suggests anything remotely like it, nothing. The difference in commercialism and true spiritual worship is whom we make our investment in, and it is the Lord. In the rendering of your personality, the talents and gifts that God has given to you, and in the areas in which you as well exercise a stewardship of our resources that God has entrusted to you, there's no commercialism here. There's just the Lord. The Lord looks down upon us with the favor that God looked down upon Jesus because of the reality of the satisfaction of the Son of God going to the cross before us and securing beautifully, our forgiveness, we are seen without the stain of humanity upon us. Isn't that amazing? There are some that sit and wallow in failure and disobedience. It's true, we all have. We should be moving from that, but God hasn't moved at all in his position of loving you beyond your failures, disobedience, disregard. Still got time. We all do. Let's do better. In the closure of this, the cleansing that's represented, it means God's at work, both in his sacrifice, but this was in advance, meaning that this was corrective cleansing. God does do a cleansing that is corrective. And for some of us, when we take the elements of communion, we're actually saying, Lord, Correction is so doomy, me, but as I do this and remember you, if there's mercy that you could apply, that is what I want. Do you realize how many times that God's mercy has intervened in the time of also what could be corrective necessity? Praise God. Oh, my word. You can ask yourself how many times you almost die in an automobile accident. Chances are, you were 50-50 responsible for it. God delivered you from a consequence that in part you were 50-50 responsible for, maybe more. And he delivered you, delivered me. He cleanses the temple. Closing on this thought, several points to remember. I think it's relatable, but nevertheless, these are the things that I'd like you to consider. Like Jesus, and in this particular, set your heart, your chin, like flint. That's Isaiah 50, verse 7. You can look it up. It's a very popular passage. It shows his conviction to satisfy his purpose, to die for you and me. Isaiah 50, verse 7. And if so, in doing that, Notice then some of the things that you as well will move through as challenges. The challenges, are you going to get misled? And these are the areas that we're vulnerable in. Jesus, in some points, tested like us, is familiar with the trials. He's able to identify with anything you're going through. But will you get misled on your triumphal entry into the next thing that God has for you by your feelings? You need to have that examined by your feelings. Misled from the plan of God by your feelings. Number two, misled by your failures. Do you really believe there's a failure that God cannot both forgive you in and enable you through? Do you realize that's what the enemy loves to do, is stack up your failures, that you literally will quit? Number three, false teachers. Misled by false teachers, we are in the days in which false doctrine will be presented, false teachers will be charismatic. They will come and snatch your heart and your mind and your purpose. Number four, foolish bravado. That means a strength that you're exercising in prideful arrogance, and you're doing it to have advantage over someone else or something else. And it very likely could be God himself. Foolish bravado. And number five, faithlessness. Jesus said, when I return, will I find faith on earth? So if these things are one that you're vulnerable to, mark them and say, Lord, these I do not want to be separating me from you by any degree. Lord, some of these are apropos. They've identified actually where I'm at right now. I've been misled. I tend to be a real feely guy, a gal. My heart is very weak under certain tensions, very sensitive, so sensitive that actually probably I would stop following you in order to preserve myself with that person or with that desire. Lord, help me not to fail anymore. Grant me purposed success that brings you glory. Some of those things simply to consider Jesus was able to make it into the city, out of the city. He wept for the city. You're privileged to weep for the city too. But as you weep for the city, remember that there are things also to weep for improvements in our life. And that's important. The journey's been documented. It's been prophesied. Your life has been documented, it's been prophesied. Every single one of us gets to go to heaven with the satisfaction that God got us to where he wanted us and we chose to stay on that course and not deviate. That's what we get to do. And we know as a faithful shepherd, the odds are in his favor for the favor that he's given us and the potential of really not messing up as much as we think we are. But we've got to make that decision to turn back to him. We've got to make that decision. Are there people that we're leaving behind because they hurt our feelings? They deserve to be left behind. Any of those?